0: Give me a moment to get myself organised here. Keep uh, Genesis 37 open there. We're going to be going through the whole chapter. So you want to uh, be following along because we only read the first 11 verses. But now I'm going to pray. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful diversity of your word. We thank you for the way this year already we've uh, been amazed by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've learned from the poetry of Psalms over the last few weeks. And now we turn to this wonderful part of the Old Testament. Uh, and Father, we pray that you will teach us from it. Uh, and most importantly, uh, you will show us how we should respond to this wonderful part of Scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was uh, at high school in Brisbane, which uh, might explain something about me to some of you, uh, every year we had a school musical. And it was a massive production, and it was uh, particularly strange at our school because I was at a boys' school where rugby and cricket were everything. So, uh, and this was the one time in the year where the arts were sort of even tolerated and mentioned. Uh, it was that sort of school, one of those sort of schools. And to tell you the truth, I think the real reason we got into the musical every year was because we were a boys' school and they bust in girls from our sister school for the musical. Not that we did anything, because we just sort of stood on the other side of the stage and acted awkwardly, but, you know, that was our one chance to meet girls. So we did a musical every year, uh, but the only one I remember was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. That is the only musical I remember. Has anyone ever seen a production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? It was huge in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, it uh, it was Andrew Lloyd Webber you know Jesus Christ superstar and all that sort of stuff Uh, it was absolutely massive and here is a picture of me as Joseph in oh where are we where are these slides they're not there that's so disappointing (laughs) Kev where are they can we go find the 9 a.m. ones quickly because you've got to see me as Joseph this would be (laughs) so disappointing I'm like devastated here. I even learned how to use the clicker, which for those who know me well, know is an amazing feat that has occurred. And Troy's not here to see it. He's on holidays. There you go. But just keep talking amongst yourselves. But anyway, but the reason I'll keep going and then you can come back and see this picture. But the reason it was so huge uh, and why Andrew Lloyd Webber worked out, you know, that write musicals based on Bible stories is because they're the best stories. That's what he worked out. And Joseph is one of those great human stories. It's about family conflict. It's about tragedy. It's about redemption. It's got intrigue. It's got romance of a sort, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks. Uh, It's got violence. And you can see why it was such a massive hit. They even made a movie out of it. You can go find it on YouTube, I'm sure, now and watch it for free. Uh, But it was so, so successful. And so as we look at the story, here it is. Here's me as Joseph. For those with really keen eyes, you'll work out that was Jason Donovan playing Joseph. I never got to play Joseph. I was in the chorus. So there you go. But that's Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's Jason Donovan playing the lead role back in 1991 or something like that. So there you go. Joseph. An amazing story. Are we ready to go through? It's all going to work from the clicker now, Kev. We're all good. Excellent. But as we read the story of Joseph over the next eight weeks, my hope for you is that we'll sort of get into it and enjoy it. So what I want you to do is I want you to read ahead. I want you to, uh, to really get into it and read right through this week. Get into it like a novel. Put aside your whatever else it is you're reading and just pick it up at chapter 37 and read right through to chapter 50 of Genesis. Uh, the Bible is not just a theology textbook. Too many people just treat the Bible as like a theology textbook. It has stories and it has history because we human beings we connect with stories. It's one of the ways we we connect with it because especially when they are true stories about real people like Joseph. So as we go, we'll learn as we empathize with Joseph and the other people in the story. That's part of the way this part of the Bible works. But to really. Something's going on where someone's going through the slides. Anyway, to really grasp what God wants us to get out of this story, we always need to remember that it is only ever part of the bigger story. This is the key to understanding the whole Bible. People love coming and ripping parts of the Bible out of their context, and it, it ends in always ends in trouble. It always ends in misunderstandings. We always need to remember that every part of the Bible story is part of the bigger story of the Bible. So you only ever understand one part of the Bible if you understand where it fits in as a part of the whole and that's especially the case here because you would have already as we read it in Genesis 37 1 to 11 before this family that seems so dysfunctional is not just meant to be sort of like a a lesson for us in how to run a better family or something. What that family is amazingly is God's chosen people in embryonic form. So before we pick up at Genesis 37, we need to go back and briefly look at what comes before in the Bible. So the whole of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards is about God dealing with the problem of human sin. That is the whole story of the Bible. From Genesis 3 onwards... It is about God dealing with the problem of human sin. So God, right back at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world, he created everything in it, and then he created humanity to rule it under him, to enjoy it, to rule it, but to submit to him as the ultimate king, the ultimate authority. But what happened? What did humanity do? We ruined it. We said, yeah, we like the idea of ruling, just not the under you bit, God. So Adam and Eve said, we want to decide right and wrong for ourselves. And so the first 11 chapters of the Bible are about as humanity spread throughout the world, what spread with them? Sin and hatred and evil and everything that goes with humanity. And that is the story of Genesis 1 to 11. But then you get to Genesis chapter 12, which is perhaps the most important verse or, or chapter of the Old Testament. Because then in Genesis 12, God stepped in to the evil of humanity and he chose one man. Who was that man? Abram, who became Abraham. If you couldn't answer that question, you need to go and do intro to the Bible the next time Jason offers it. So he picked this one man, Abraham, who was married to Sarah. And God said, it is through this man. Abraham that I'm going to fix the world I'm going to fix all of humanity he said I will deal with the problem of sin and save a people for my very own and God made these great promises to Abraham what were the promises to Abraham what did he say he said Abraham I will bless you he said I will bless you and I will make you a great nation you'll have more descendants than there is sand on the seashore or stars in the night sky. And he said, I will give you this wonderful land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. I will give you that as your possession. But more than that, he said, Abraham, through you, I will bless the whole earth. I will bless every nation through you, this one man, Abraham. And those promises that you find in Genesis 12, that covenant as it's called between God and Abraham that is the key to understanding the rest of the Bible if you don't get that you don't understand anything else in the Bible the rest of the Bible is about God fulfilling those promises to Abraham and his descendants and then to the whole world now I won't go through all the intervening years at this point that's covered in Genesis 12 through to 36 and you can read it for yourself but very briefly Abraham had a son who was called anyone want to go Isaac well first of all he had Ishmael but Ishmael was sort of the cheating way of fulfilling God's promises remember what was the problem for Abraham and Sarah God said I'm going to give you as many descendants as there are sand on the seashore and Abraham said yeah not likely I'm 100 she's 90 and we haven't got any kids so they said well we'll do something about it you can sleep with Hagar Sarah's servant girl and and they had Ishmael, but God said, that is not the child of the promise. The child of the promise, the miracle child, if you like, was Isaac. And then Isaac, he married Rebekah. And what happened then? Who did they they have? Who were their children? Esau and Jacob. But again, because God doesn't work in the way we expect him to. Esau was the eldest one by about 14 seconds, because they were twins. But God said, no, 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 I'm going to work through Jacob. Jacob is the one who I'm going to fulfill all these promises to, Uh, and it's Jacob who is going to be the son of the promise. And so then we get to Genesis 37, and Jacob has had how many sons? Twelve. So we go to the next one. I'll come back to who these four ladies are in a second, but to put it very briefly, Jacob was not a model of godliness, And he had children of four different women all at the same time. So he had Reuben, he had Simeon, he had Levi, he had Judah, he had Dan, he had Naphtali, he had Gad. They're great names they had back then, aren't they? He had Asher, then he had Issachar, and then he had Zebulun. And then right, right, right at the end, sort of the baby boy of the end, he had Joseph, his 11th son. But finally from his favourite wife who was Rachel then Benjamin came along at the end and you know I think he was sort of the accident at the end but anyway (laughs) that's Benjamin it's true I'm not making it up he's just sort of the anyway don't worry about that now I won't go through all the details for you but as you read about this family the one thing you decide in the one thing you see in the end is they are awful They are absolutely awful. You can read the chapters for yourself later on, but the exploits of many of these sons were nothing to be proud of. There was violence, there was incest, there was sexual immorality, but this is the family. This is the family who God says, I am going to bless the whole world through them. This dysfunctional sinful family. And in that, you get the first lesson from the Joseph story, the first thing I want us to see. And that is right from the start, you see that God deals with humanity. How? On the basis of grace. God doesn't say, I will give you what you deserve. He doesn't say, I'm going to look for people who deserve to be the object of my blessing. He finds sinners and forgives them and uses them to bring about his blessings. And so that brings us to Joseph in chapter 37. So let's go there now. Open up your Bibles, chapter 37, and you meet Joseph in verses 1 to 4. And straight away that we get an insight into just how dysfunctional this family is. Uh, Keep up the family tree for us, please, Dave. Uh, You see, straight away, Joseph, like many younger brothers, the first thing you learn about him, I'm a younger brother, so I can say this. He was a tattletale. That's what he was. And so the first thing you learn about Joseph was he daubed in his brothers to his dad. Now, they had done the wrong thing. It wasn't like he was making up stories. But even so, he was a dobber. Worse than that, these were the brothers who particularly hated him. Because what you see here is, do you remember what happened with Jacob and his wives? So Jacob, who was the wife he really loved? Rachel. So he went to marry Rachel, but what happened? His father-in-law played a trick on him and said, I want to get rid of my other daughter got him to marry Leah so he married Leah then he said no but I really want to marry Rachel so he had to work for another seven years to for to his father-in-law to earn her and so he married Rachel as well but the difficulty was Rachel couldn't have children this was the problem so Leah was having all these children and you can imagine how happy that family was as these sisters who hated each other, are both wives of the one man, one's bearing him child after child after child, and Rachel can't have any children at all. So it was a totally dysfunctional family. Jacob makes it worse by then having children with Zilpah, who was Leah's slave, and with Bilhah, who was Rachel's slave. This is model families, isn't it? You you know, and until American reality shows came, this, this was unusual, but now we think it's usual. But it was horrible. It was true. And you can imagine how much these guys, the children of the slave girls, they hated Joseph, but it was them who he dobbed in. So already you're seeing Joseph is hated by his brothers, because Joseph was the, the late-born son of the favorite wife, and Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph wasn't just sort of like a hidden family secret wasn't just something they, I think Joseph's Jacob's favourite, Jacob was just open about it, he said, he's my favourite, I love him much more than I love you and he made a big show of it by giving him the Technicolor Dreamcoat, no the Technicolor Dreamcoat is actually in the Bible, it was a coat of many colours, a bright coat and so everyone knew this is daddy's favourite. Jacob, this is just an aside, Jacob really is a model of how not to parent, Uh, If at some point God blesses you with being a parent and you want to learn how to parent, read everything Jacob does and do the opposite and you'll be a good parent. But very, very sadly, it's a great lesson. This isn't the main point of the story, but this is a great lesson in the fact that sometimes parents reap what we sow. Sometimes parents reap what we sow. Jacob's unfaithfulness in his marriage and then his favoritism towards different children, if Jay, he, he was to blame. Everything that happens after this is his fault. You know, I can imagine Jacob crying out to God, why did you let this happen to my sons? And I can imagine God saying, I didn't, you did. You're to blame. You are responsible. We have to remember that sometimes God is incredibly gracious to us and blesses us more than we deserve but other times he allows us to reap what we sow and that's the case in the story of jacob but you see the reaction of the other sons in verse four Look at verse four it says when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him but despite that despite the fact that none of his brothers liked him god had great plans for joseph despite being the hated 11th of 12 sons, Joseph was the one who God decided he would work through. And God revealed that to Joseph through two dreams. So look at verse five. It says, then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep you see what i hated him hey guys god has told me that you are all going to serve me you're going to bow down to me even though i'm your little brother and if that wasn't enough god gave him a second dream that sealed his fate because in this dream the sun and the moon and the eleven stars are all bowing down to joseph And even the slowest of his brothers knew that Joseph was saying, All of you and our father and my mother are going to bow down to me. I am going to be the king and you are going to be my servants. You can really see why they hated Joseph, can't you? Uh, Now, it wasn't Joseph's fault. God gave him the dreams, God was telling him what was going to happen. It was true. He didn't ask his dad to treat him as his favorite. And his brothers did the wrong thing; they were evil. Joseph's issue, if anything, was a lack of wisdom, more than anything else, not understanding when to speak and when not to. And at this point, even his father is upset with him. If you look there in verse eleven, but then there's that interesting little comment at the end of verse eleven. It says, "But his father kept the matter in mind." It reminds me of when uh, Jesus goes off to the temple. Remember, as a, like a teenager. And his mother is upset and angry but it says she stored these things away it's like that even while he's angry with him there's a part of Jacob that hopes it's true because Joseph is his favorite after all but in any event Joseph's fate was sealed and his brothers now are just waiting for a chance to act and that leads us into act two of our musical not that we're making it a musical tonight you'll be pleased to know act two of the story and that is the murderers in verses 12 to 28. So look at those verses with me. We didn't read those before. So you need to look along. So sometime later, the other brothers had gone with the flocks to a place called Shechem. Now that is about 50 miles, about four or five days walk from where Jacob lived with all the children. So when then Jacob says to Joseph, "I want you to go out to your brothers, those 50 miles away, and find out how they're doing." But when he gets there, it says they weren't there and he's told they've gone on to Dothan, which is about another 15 miles away. So by now, he's about 65 miles away from his father. And that's why they tell us that. You know, when you think, why do they give us all these sort of detailed information? Well, it's to build the tension, but it's also to just let us know Joseph is on his own now. Daddy's not going to look after him anymore. His daddy can't help him at the moment. And so when Joseph's brothers see him coming, and the reason they see him coming is because he's got the brightest cloak ever in the history of the world. So miles away, they're going, what is that blinding us? Oh, it's Joseph. What do they do? They decide to kill him. And you can imagine for days they've been thinking, we hate him, we hate him, stirring each other on. So now's their chance. Look at verse 19. It says, they said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So things are not looking good for Joseph at this point. But the eldest brother, Reuben, had some pangs of conscience. Or perhaps he saw the chance to be a hero in his father's eyes. We don't know what it was. Whatever it was, he pulled rank and he said, we're not going to kill our brother. At least we're not going to spill his blood. What we're going to do is we're just going to throw him into the pit. And you so he, he was hoping they'd believe that they would leave him there to die. But Reuben's plan was to then circle back, rescue Joseph, and probably then take him back to his father and become at least the second favorite son, even if not the favorite. So Joseph came and they descend on him like a pack of dogs. They strip him of his clothes. They cast him into the pit with no water and no food. Their intention, other than Reuben, their intention was that he would starve to death in that pit. And it's quite chilling there in verse 25. So he's laying there bleeding and naked in a pit and he's starving. And look at verse 25, it says, they sat down to eat a meal. If you had any sympathy for them at that point, if you are an older brother who sort of empathised with them at at their treatment of their little brother, up, up to this point, you might feel some sympathy for them. But now you see them for what they are. They're just chilling out murderers. That's what they are. But it turns out Joseph... While he was out of Jacob's protective circle, he wasn't out of God's protective circle. And it wasn't just Reuben who had other plans for Joseph. God had other plans for Joseph. So just when they were about to leave him to die in the pit, along come some Midianite traders, descendants of Ishmael, sort of distant relatives of God's chosen people. Uh, now Reuben wasn't there at this point to take control. So Judah, the fourth born son, steps up to take the lead. And Judah says, Let's not kill him. He is our brother after all. He says, What we should do is sell him to these slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. Does that remind you of anything? Should remind you of Judas, shouldn't it, in the New Testament? It's hard to know Judah's motives at this point. It could be he was greedy and just thought, Why kill him when we can make some money out of him? Uh, It could be he had good motives. He thought, well, this is the only way to save my brother from my bloodthirsty other brothers. Interestingly, with some horrible mistakes along the way, by the end of Genesis, Judah is going to overtake Joseph as the most important of the 12 brothers. But for now, Joseph is the one and he is led off as a slave to be sold in Egypt. Now, we'll come back to poor old Joseph at the end. But for now, there's one last episode in our story and that is the deception in verses 29 to 36 so look there reuben comes back finds out that they've sold joseph so his plan for a rescue operation is thwarted he's devastated but together the brothers come up with a plan they take that wonderful coat and they rip it and they soak it in the blood of a goat and then they send it to their father and tell their father your favorite son joseph is dead it was a horrible accident. It had nothing to do with us. And we're told that Jacob mourned and refused to be comforted by anyone. It was normal that a parent at that time, if, you, if, you, if a child died like this, a parent would put on a public display of mourning for a week. They would put ashes on their head. They would not eat anything and all this sort of stuff. You get hints later in the story that Jacob never stopped mourning for Joseph for 20 years. It's, it's, you, you get the picture that this destroyed him what happened to his son and really that's the end of today's passage it is a horrible story isn't it i mean all families have their issues i hope your family is not quite as bad as this one Uh, but it does make you as you read this story at least i it makes me reflect on my own sinfulness see we mightn't sink to the same point as this in our relationships they sadly only have to watch the the six o'clock news on the TV to see how many families this is normal for. You know, families who end up in murder and end up in the courts and end up in all sorts of horrible places. But even if we don't sink quite this low, we all see something of ourselves in these brothers, I think. Because this story sort of reflects our own petty jealousies, the way we're jealous our own favoritism, our own greed, our own selfishness. And I don't know about you, but I think perhaps more than the others, I see something of myself in the mixed motives of Reuben and Judah. You know, they they try and do good, but even the good they do messes up, and there's evil and good intertwined. That is the human experience in this sinful fallen world. But what about Joseph? That's who I want us to finish on, because Joseph did not deserve this. I mean, he wasn't perfect, But here at worst he was naive and unwise. That's what he was. It wasn't his fault that his father was hopeless. It wasn't his fault that he had evil brothers. It wasn't his fault that God gave him dreams. He could have been a bit smarter about who he shared them with but it wasn't his fault that it happened. So what are we to make of what happens to Joseph? Well I want to draw out three points to finish and you'll see them there on your outline. The first is Joseph teaches us about the plan of God when bad things happen to us like what happened to Joseph here people love to say where was your God when bad stuff happens people love to say well where was God then where was God when Joseph was being attacked by his brothers where was God when Joseph was being sold into slavery Where was God when this awful thing or that awful thing happened? And the answer that Genesis gives, and many people do not like it, including Christians. I'm amazed how many Christians just refuse to believe what the Bible makes very, very clear. You see, and we have to repent of that because it is the most wonderful truth of Scripture. The answer that Genesis gives is that God is never absent. Even when the bad stuff is happening, it's not like God is missing God is there and God wasn't just there to save him either God was actually behind it all and this is a very difficult truth to to fully understand it's the the doctrine of God's providence, providence providence that's a hard word to say if you think about it God was the one who set it all up God was the one who gave Joseph the dreams that set his brothers off God was obviously there But more than that, everything that happened from Jacob's hopeless parenting to his brother's jealousy, the good and the bad, everything that happened was part of God's plan and God was actually using it for good. Later in the story, what you learn right near the end of Genesis chapter 50 is that all of Jacob's family would have died in 20 years time when a terrible famine hit Canaan. They would have starved. They would have all died. And with them, all of God's promises to Abraham would have come to naught. All of God's promises for the salvation of the whole world would have come to naught, except Joseph was in Egypt to save them. And how was Joseph there? The only way Joseph was there was because of this horrible event in Genesis 37. See, the key verse for understanding this whole story and we're coming back to it almost every week is right at the end of the story it's genesis 50 verse 20 but look on your outline i printed it out there this is joseph talking to his brothers when he meets them again in 20 years time he says you planned evil against me god planned it for good to bring about the present result the survival of many people see joseph says jacob your sinful favoritism my brother's evil jealousy, the Midianites' evil slave trade, all of those things, they intended them for evil. It's not like they could say, oh, well, God was using them, so we're off the hook. No, no, no. They were evil, and they were responsible for it. But even those things were part of God's plan. First of all, to save the people of Egypt, as we'll see. More importantly than that, to save God's people. And then even more importantly than that, to bring blessing to the whole world. This is what we call the doctrine of God's providence. When we look with a long-term view at things, if this hadn't happened to Joseph, if he hadn't been thrown into a pit and sold into slavery, Jesus' family would have died out. And Jesus would never have come. So what you start to see when you look with a long-term view is this wasn't just part of God's plan for 1800 B.C., it was all part of God's plan for putting his human saviour in place. If this hadn't happened, you would not be saved. That's why it's so important. But the thing is, we only see that with the benefit of hindsight, don't we? When we're in the midst of suffering, when horrible things are happening to us, it is much harder to see that God is working for our greater good, isn't it? It's much easier to cry out, where are you, God? Why do you let this happen to me? Why is this happening? That is much easier than to trust that God is in control and working for good. But that's where my second related conclusion comes in, which is the example of Joseph. More than anything else, the story of Joseph reminds us that bad stuff happens to good people. If you ever get a preacher who tells you, because you follow Jesus, good stuff is going to happen to you all the time. Walk out of that church because it's just not true. What the Bible says is, no, no, no. In this fallen, sinful world, bad stuff happens, even to good people. Joseph is, along with maybe Enoch, which is a great story from earlier in Genesis, and Daniel, right at the end of the Old Testament, they are the closest you will ever find to sinless human beings. In fact, often people try to say Joseph never sinned. They try to say he was like Jesus, he never sinned. I think we see already that that isn't the case. He was a sinner like you and I. But by any stretch of the imagination, Joseph was the man of godliness in this story. He's not like Abraham, who went and slept with slave girls and and uh, went and farmed his wife out to Pharaoh, and all sorts of evil things. He's not like Jacob, who tricked everyone along the way, and stole, and plundered. And it, Joseph is godly. He is the good one of the story, but he cops it all the time, and it gets even worse in future weeks when he gets down to Egypt. But that is the thing with this life. Bad stuff will happen. Sometimes because of our own sin. Sometimes we sin and bad stuff happens. Sometimes because of other people's sin. Sometimes because of other people we love's sin. Sometimes it's just because we are in the wrong place at the wrong time and there is no real reason we can see why horrible things happen. Joseph's life teaches us that life in this fallen world is not fair in that sense of the word. But one of the things you see with Joseph is that despite the fact that he had every reason for self-pity, if anyone had the right to say, I am going to take revenge on my brothers, I am going to cry out to God and be angry with God, if anyone had that right, it was Joseph. But despite that, you never ever, through the whole story, see a hint of anything other than faith and grace from joseph see no wonder people question whether he ever sinned because we say we could never do that i could tell you if i was joseph i wouldn't be anywhere near as gracious as much as i wish i would be how can that be it's there in that key verse look at it again genesis 50 verse 20 on your outline that's what joseph says right at the end joseph like his father and his father's father and his father's father before him, Joseph trusted God and his promises. So Joseph said, whatever happens to me, God is going to fulfill those promises. Whatever happens to me, God is working for the long-term good of his people. See, Joseph would have said a loud amen to that great verse, Romans eight twenty eight, which is one of the great verses of Scripture. Again, look at it on your outline he says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. That's one of those verses that you uh, find with puppy dogs on a poster, and they put it on the wall for you, or people crochet it for you and give it to you, you know, that that sort of thing. I don't even know what crochet is, but you know what I mean. Uh, And it's really, really easy to say those words. It's really, really easy to say, yeah, yeah, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Joseph shows you what it means to believe them. Joseph shows you what it means to live by them. The thing is, how much more should we know that truth than Joseph? Which is what leads me to my third and final conclusion. We should know it better than Joseph. Because we know the one who Joseph was just a pale imitation of. See, it's interesting. Jesus says all of the Old Testament points to me jesus says whatever part of the old testament you read whether it's a prophecy or a psalm or the history of joseph every part of it is designed by god to point forward to me to jesus and in joseph you see it so clearly see as we're reading about joseph we're meant to say that reminds me of jesus that points me to jesus you see, like Joseph, Jesus was rejected by all his family and his friends. Like Joseph, Jesus was beaten and abused and left for dead and sold for some pieces of silver. And like Joseph, Jesus' suffering was for the salvation of those who had rejected him, namely us. So Joseph is not just an example to us of a great Christian man, if you like. He's not just an example to us of faith, of faith and trusting in God, and all those wonderful things. He is that, but he's so much more. What he is, is he is pointing us forward to the one we trust in. And it's knowing Jesus that enables us to face suffering, and pain, and sin, like Joseph did. Because whatever happens to you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, whatever happens to you, however you are wronged, however you are hurt, we know that God is not absent. We know that in Jesus, God has worked for our good and has guaranteed us a future that makes the pains of this fallen sinful world and even the joys of this fallen sinful world makes them just pale into insignificance. That is our hope. That is the Christian hope. We can say boldly, I know God is working for my good, even when it doesn't look like it at all. Even when I am abandoned, even when I am sinned against, even when I am hated, I know Jesus, I know God is working for my good. That is the hope that Joseph shared and the hope that Joseph points us forward to. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We know that in this fallen, sinful world, we, like Joseph, will face pain and suffering. By your grace, some of us face very little, but some of us face awful suffering and pain. But Father, we pray that like Joseph, we might trust that you are working for our good, for our eternal good. And we thank you that because we know Jesus who suffered for us, We thank you that because of that, we know that to be true. We know that you are working for our good, even when nothing looks like it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.